You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Irish show garden designer Peter Donegan, who's made quite a name for himself here in Australia. This week, we're going to hear from an Aussie who's making his way through Europe. Ash Walker is a friend of both myself and Peter, and you might recognise him from episode 140 of the Plants Grow Here podcast, working in the UK Roundtable, with Ash, Tyler Howard and Scott Smith, where we discuss Tyler and Ash's escapades through Europe. Well, Ash has made his way back to Europe and spent quite a few months working in some of the most famous gardens in the world. We have an amazing horticulture industry in this country, but sometimes it feels like our horticultural excellence is hidden from all but a very few people. Unless you're visiting a botanic garden or a National Trust of Australia garden or something fancy like that. It seems to me like the masses are simply hedging, spraying and making things neat and tidy with straight lines. I was curious, what can we Aussies learn from what they're doing over in Europe? What are the differences between the way that we approach horticulture compared with how they do? And what can we learn from each garden that Ash has worked in? Welcome back to the show, Ash. Oh, thank you, uh, Daniel, for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So, look, you're back in the in well, you're back in Europe. Can you tell me a little bit about like your journey since we last talked? Oh wow! So when did we last talk? That was that was last year. Yeah, last year. Yeah, yeah, wow. So, well, I think when we last talked, I was back home. But um, since then, it's been a, well, it's been a big year, actually. So, um, when I left back home, I decided, you know, travel. I got the travel bug, basically, <laughs> from, from, from last year. And um, so, I set up a placement in the first garden at Tresco Abbey Garden for this year. I uh, was there for two weeks. Fantastic garden, that is. Um Andrew Lawson, the head gardener, probably one of the best um, I've certainly met so far. Uh, insane working there. And then also very interesting just working on an island, actually, just, just off the coast of uh, Cornwall there in the Isles of Scilly. So yeah, that was a fantastic gardener worker. And then after that, um, I went, what did I do? I did a bit of, that's right, I did a bit of traveling. I went up to Edinburgh. Um, Went there, visited the Edinburgh Botanic Gardens, um, another fantastic uh, garden as well. I uh, had a good w- tour around there with a lady, Christy Wilson, um, who does uh, BBC TV presenter, and she's a supervisor there at Edinburgh Botanic. Very lovely. Um, did a bit more traveling, went to Amsterdam, uh, Kokonoff, the tulip display up there. Insane. Everyone has to see that. Um, I was quite almost afraid of going there, thinking that it's going to be a bit of a um, theme park type uh, display. But no, it was very natural. It looks it looked like, and it was very interesting to sort of see. Then after that, I've started here at Monet's, at Claude Monet's, um, on the first of May, and I've been here ever since. Ever since then, so a whole five months, and. Um, my main reason for coming back was because here at Monet's, the garden just changes every single day, basically. And you just, there's different things flowering at different times. And it's just so interesting to, to be a part of the team. And even the work that they do here 
it's a lot of things that we can us um well really any other place can come to and work you can take a lot out of uh working at the garden here so the, the main reason for coming back was yeah just to see the different times of gardens um throughout the year but no been here since since may and absolutely loved every single minute of it so that's really what I want to talk about today, and that's you know, like you're an Aussie, you've come good, <laughs> you've, you've, you're an, you're one of our best exports. I, I you know, I see the stuff you're posting on LinkedIn, and I always just think like, wow, that's so cool. Like, I think that the horticulture culture in Europe is a bit different to Australia, and I, I guess what I'm going to ask you is like what mm. you've learned overseas, but I, I also just want to ask before we get to that, what mm. do you think that the culture is? in Australia compared with in Europe? Like, is it the same sort of, like, do we view the world the same or is it a little bit different or what's going on? No, not necessarily. So um, it's definitely very different compared from, I would say all Europe altogether, they all have the same sort of work ethic and same ideas and strategies and practices in horticulture, how we work over here compared to um, back home. So it's very different. Um, even like how horticulture is perceived. So it's seen over here as much more respected and higher. That you just, it's much, much more respected and just sort of a bit more respect mm. in the, what you actually do, um, what your work is. But then compared to back home, it's certainly seen as a lesser job compared to other jobs um that are out there as well so very mm-hmm. interesting to sort of compare the two just because they're, they're they're much well ahead over here of course they've been you know europe has been europe for much much longer than what australia's been australia and they've certainly built over time the the right practices mm. to to do in horticulture so it's very different but definitely the respect thing is one thing i've probably one of the the biggest things I've noticed over here compared to back home is just that how people perceive horticulture because back home that you're just sort of seen, you know, you're not seen as a horticulturalist, you're seen as just a gardener. And then mm-hmm. a gardener it just pulls weeds, mows lawns, that sort of scene. Over here, it's seen as more of an actual applied science rather than just sort of you're pulling weeds every day. So it's, yeah, very interesting that is. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, and this is what we were talking about just before we hit the record button, is that I feel like sometimes in Australia, you're right, that it's that horticulture is just seen as gardening. And I think, you know, I think it's a bit, uh, probably a good analogy seeing as you're in Monet's garden right now. But, you know, if I look at a painting, I'm not a painter, so I don't really know what I'm looking at. You know, it evokes some kind of a feeling in me and I can see like, I like that or I don't like that. But if there's an artist next to me or a painter, mm. they can actually, they have the words to describe this brush stroke or that brush stroke. Um, they can probably tell you a little bit more of a history of a particular piece. And so when I look at a painting and when an actual artist or someone who's really interested in art look at a painting, we're not even really looking at the same thing. No, no, because every single person has their own opinion, point of view. Um, well, they'll take certain things out of a painting, of course. So be, you know, mm. sometimes even it depends on what your perspective is of it. It could be you could be standing in a different position to where someone else is, and you'll see something very differently. 
So definitely, that's what it's, that's another reason why it's good to constantly have, not constantly, but each year that they're sending different, uh, with this, for instance, with the Global Footprint Scholarships, sending young kids over overseas, because the industry is also constantly changing, it's also very good to have new faces over here to see what they take out of the industry. So it's always good to have different perspectives from different all from all around the world, actually. It's mm-hmm. always very good because even, for instance, even here at Monet's, because they also have other interns here that are from America, even ones from the UK that come here. So it's necessarily not, even though it's good to sort of, I've sort of come to the belief that horticulture around the world, it's all it's all at different levels and sort of each country might be known for this or known for that. So Mm. we're sort of, it's more about sharing ideas. And for instance, like Australia, they, we, we certainly have much, uh, some knowledge there that is probably much more valuable there than it was here. So for instance, (laughs) it'd be good to sort of have sort of a, a world sort of, um, connection, uh, in horticulture. Each country has its own thing that's special about. And then, um, it's, you, know, you can take something away from each country in, in the industry of horticulture. I feel like in Australia, we know how to hedge prune, how to spray glyphosate, and how to, and how to um, make things neat and tidy. And I guess that that probably goes back to what I was talking about in terms of like an artist versus or even a horticulturist versus a gardener. I guess that that would be the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because yeah, over here, it's seen as much more of a applied science, and it's just much more respected as as a career. Honestly, mm. um, definitely back home, if um, definitely be good if they could focus a bit more in like definitely high schools. If we could get horticulture a bit more into the schools there to sort of even to sort of show young kids that hey, it's not about pulling weeds. It's there's certainly much more into it. You know, mm-hmm. like for instance, in horticulture, there's over a a hundred different careers in horticulture. So it's not just the one thing with pulling weeds and, you know, there's so much, so much to offer in the industry here or everywhere. Okay. So as an Aussie, like working in this particular garden where you are now, Monet, you've been there a couple, but what have you learned in this garden that you can bring back to us, you know, in Australia and what can we learn from your experiences? Oh, so for here at Monet's definitely, the management of a garden that changes throughout the seasons, I've sort of picked up here at Monet's because this is the garden that I've been to the longest. So I've sort of seen the progression through the seasons and how mm. it sort of comes to planning out uh, the garden because it's constantly changing. For instance, where uh, the start of November is when the whole garden will get dug up. Of course, like roses and sort of big shrubs and trees will stay, but majority of your annuals and the biennials actually will get pulled up and then um, they'll plant all the tulips for for next year and then they will flower uh, around April when the garden opens up again and then that will get dug up around June and uh, then we'll go through, plant the whole garden out again full of all your perennials and um, biennials and then that will sort of get left and then you've got different things flowering like then the irises will start flowering and then after that and then there'll be some alliums and it's just the management of how to plan a garden throughout the year 
is one thing I definitely picked up uh, over here. But another thing also was um, uh, sustainable methods um, in weed control. So, for instance, they've everything that is planted here in, in the garden at Monet's is grown on site. For instance, well, the the, the tulips uh, they come from the Netherlands, but most mm. year perennials and uh, biennial or annuals and biennials, sorry, are grown here on site. And before we go through and plant the field out that's above the greenhouse, they'll get a big tractor that is connected to like a big plate that's about one meter um, width by about two meters long ways. And um, that goes over the soil and it pumps steam into the soil. And it's very interesting sort of watching that and it goes through and kills all the weed seeds that are in the soil. And it's just much more... Um, sustainable method of doing it rather than going through with glyphosate and spraying the whole field and um, so there's certainly a lot of differences definitely in Europe also sustainable methods of pest control and weed control are certainly something um, that they're, they're very uh, good at over here and we have a lot, lot to learn okay so there's steam as one method are there any other methods of weed control that we can learn from um Actually, at Tresco, I, um, they actually used a flame gun. So Andrew actually, um, seeing him, he would go through all the pathways and uh, have a flame gun. So he would use a, um, a method like that and kills all the weeds. It only kills all the annual weeds, though. If it's a perennial weed, it probably it will take a few sort of uh, applications to sort of get the to kill all that off. But definitely mm. flame control as well. So he had a flame gun. And it was very interesting watching him watching him do that. It was very interesting. Right. So that also that's another way, I guess both of those methods are really going to kill those seeds, as you say. So oh, definitely. whereas glyphosate yes. probably isn't going to kill those seeds. No, not necessarily. Well need a pre emergent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. For instance, when it comes to sort of steam and well, for instance, steam in the field, even though I understand that it's definitely the, the, the better way, but it's there's no 100% good method that will fix all your problems. For instance, mm. you use steam. You're still killing worms that are in the soil, sort of breaking other microorganisms in the soil. are still going to die from that steam and heat. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly the, the, way, the method to go for, definitely compared to back home, of Spain glyphosate stays in the soil for years. And then you keep growing a crop and it's just, yeah, not the best. (laughs) And one other thing I picked up from what you were saying is that Mm. a garden changes throughout the year. So I think in Australia, we don't always think about that either. Like we'll put in one hedge, maybe Mm. it's a grevillea Mm -hmm. that's going to flower through winter or it's a calistamon that'll flower through spring or something like that. And maybe some, let's just say some native grasses. Uh, These are great plants, by the way, beautiful Australian native plants. Mm. Mm. You know, we'll hedge the 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 um, the grass, or some people will burn it. I don't know anyone. Well, I do know people who do it, but I've never seen it mm. done before. Um, the you know the the clumping grasses, but then we'll let it be bare throughout winter, and then you know oh, it doesn't matter. It'll look good at one time of the year. And I, I just don't think we see it like they see it overseas. No, certainly not. I think it just with the progression over time, the fact that they've been. Europe more and they've gone mm. through and experimented and tested in different methods like that. Mm-hmm. They're just well ahead over here when it's 
comes to most of your things in horticulture, most certainly, most certainly. Mm. So what about another garden that you've been to or been working in? I'd like to talk now about Kew Gardens because even if people haven't been to Europe, that's probably one that people recognize. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. Kew is definitely one of the leading botanical gardens in the world, mm. actually. Um, very interesting working in, of course, the glass houses at Kew, you know, that have over ten to, uh, eight to 10,000 plants in each. It's a just that is a challenge in itself, sort of right. maintaining all those plants with the watering and um, definitely having like a maintenance schedule with that, uh, with caring with such a large number of plants in, in glass houses was something that I definitely learnt, learnt there, having a water schedule uh, and a maintenance schedule between them two. So what do you mean by a watering or a maintenance schedule? Can you il- illuminate that for us? Um. For instance, when, of course, when you're in um, summer, you're going to be watering much more often. So designating – they did have irrigation in through – wait. No, they didn't. Sorry. They didn't, they didn't have any irrigation in the glass houses that I – from what I recall in the – like in the tropical, the conservatory, and the palm house. So what they – I remember seeing a sheet – in the office there and I'd have names of the person that would have to water area each day. So mm-hmm. then having that sort of time and, but in summer, of course, it'd be much more regularly. And then mm. in winter, it'd be of course, not, not as often, but then sort of having a good watering schedule to also know how much your water usage is throughout the year. Because as back home, um, you know, we were, we were had a, had a drought and, um, Knowing how much water your water usage is is certainly something that is very, very good. And then also a maintenance schedule as well. Really, the management of the garden and sort of, even though something like Q, it's not like here in Monet's where it's constantly changing with different plantings all the time, but definitely doing the equation and the maths to figure out what you need to do throughout the year is definitely much more um, efficient, saves time. It's just much more better to have a good maintenance schedule, watering schedule, the whole thing that involves uh, caring for plants. Um, so maintenance schedule can be sort of the same thing, knowing that this you'll set this time of the year to do all your hedge cutting, of course, or prune back um, any of your plants that you need to do. So just going through planning each time out is just much more efficient and um better at the end of the day just sort of makes you have a bit of a plan mm. and uh, pl- plenty of attack really right so it's not just about <laughs> having the same maintenance schedule for all the exactly. times of the year or <laughs> just turning no, up no, and no, no, doing no. some gardening it, exactly <laughs> it, it, it changes it changes <laughs> i love that so and also i feel like as well when you um, actually hand water plants, it's an opportunity for you to look at them. Whereas if you're it's, just automatically irrigating them, you probably don't get that. That's absolutely right. Um, actually, one thing at the Eden Project, oh, I'm just going to quickly divert. Eden Project, in the morning, when they, they would also go through watering as well, all the plants in there as well, in the big glasshouse domes. But during that time, we were actually told, to, yes, do exactly what you said to send. Go through, check the plants. Make sure you know if there's anything dead needs to be cut or sick or anything like that as you're watering. So 
having an irrigation, even though, again, at the end of the day, it saves time and you can you know, help with watering and stuff, but it takes away from that hands-on aspect of um, looking at the plants and making sure they're okay mm. and caring for them. But that was one thing at the Eden Project, I remember. That makes sense. Absolutely right. That's one thing that so a lot of places don't take into consideration, even though afterwards you can still have a bit of a walk around, but mm. that, that really forces you to, to look into it and see what's, see what's going on. I feel like it's part of your like everyday maintenance yeah. schedule as opposed to like, oh, yeah, I think I checked on it yesterday. Meanwhile, it was five days ago and uh-huh. now aphids are taking hold or whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Even with, with that. So when it comes to a maintenance schedule, for instance, having like, yeah, you walk through all the plants and saying, oh, okay, oh, that's got some aphids on there. Okay, I'll mm. jot that down. You know, all oh, this might have some thrips or you go through with the, Oh, I kind of highly put this that you definitely need you need to have a, a good record and a diary um, walking around in the garden so note all these little things because then you can look back on the previous year and say oh this is the same time this is when this happened okay this mm. is what we did we'll do that again mm. so yeah no that's yeah one thing that people don't sort of understand I suppose even just the small things like that when you're watering to go through check um that's one thing I say to kids now actually that are working in a nursery. For instance, if you're going through watering all the plants, yes, you can check them. But if you're, of course, studying, go through, read the labels. You can learn the plants mm. as you're watering as well. That's so, so true. Many more yeah, benefits to it as well. I feel like that's something that people can learn in the game that I was in, which is like regular landscape maintenance. So whether that's in a public park or in a, uh, you know, domestic setting, like even if you're not walking around watering plants because you're probably only going to turn up every two to six weeks or so, Mm. even still just having that part of your schedule where the team leader runs around the whole site, has a look under the leaves um, and, you know, has those notes to check back on from last year. So like, oh, last year we had aphids at this time of year. Let's check that, see what's going on this year or, you know, what did we do last year? Did it work? All those kinds Mm. of things. Mm. yeah absolutely and um another thing also over here is that they're they're not afraid to experiment okay i found i found when it comes to sort of different sort of issues in the garden not afraid to experiment at all um and maybe back home we're a bit more stuck in the ways maybe possibly i haven't had much of a i haven't come to a full conclusion with that one just yet but they're, they're definitely not afraid to experiment over here and give things a give things a try, which is very, very interesting. So, what does that look like in practice? Oh, okay. For um, for an example, actually here at Monet's. So, um, during Monet's time, he had uh, different lotuses in the in the pond. Actually, a few years ago, when they drained the pond, they found foundations, and they believe that Monet tried to cordon off um a little bit of the pond to to make that water a bit warmer so he can grow more tropical uh lotuses and nymphaeas Mm -hmm. he tried that during his time and we believe that it did not work during his time but because now with climate change and things getting hotter and um also with the pond itself a few of the willows that also shaded the water um a few of them got cut down and sort of rotted um 
so they had to get rid of them. But they planted them, and then this year actually, and that was sort of an experiment thing. Sort of, hey, Monet, he tried it, but he we believe he failed. But we're just going to experiment with it, and we've so they've planted ten different lotus, new tropical lotus and nymphaea flowers in the water garden now. Mm. And that's here at Monet's, one of the you know, most prestigious gardens in the mm. world. They're just going through experimenting, things like that. So definitely don't be afraid to to experiment, try new things, see if this works, if it doesn't. It's a learning experience and you move on to the next thing. With that, I think also there's going to be failures. And I would like to know, mm. like in Australia, let's say if there's, uh, you know, a single aphid or if there's like a single caterpillar bite mark mm. on a leaf, a lot of the time like we just reach for the chemical controls. Are you finding yeah. that's the same mentality of like absolute perfection over there or are they a little bit more liberal? No. No. So, for instance, no, they're liberal, liberal with it. So, something to say there's, yeah, for instance, there's a little aphid or one aphid or something on a bud. They will leave that because they'll leave that to their environment and the beneficial insects that are around, mm. you know, because they still need food at the end of the day. So mm. You can't have completely no aphids or no invasive insects, basically, at all. You still need to provide food for the beneficial insects that are going to be around. So, you, you need like a healthy balance between the two. So, no, they definitely do not go through and... And uh, one aphid, oh, no, quick, go get the spray out. <laughs> get rid of that. <laughs> absolutely not, absolutely not. So they're definitely a bit more aware of their environment and, um, yeah, sort of work with it, not against it. I feel like another gripe that I have with the Australian gardening culture <laughs> or horticulture culture <laughs> is that um, there's like neat lines. And look, mm-hmm. obviously that's over in the in the UK and in Europe too. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of straight lines. Oh, yeah. But how do they feel about like I think a lot of my clients that I've worked with, I just wish I could have told them, can we please leave the natural shape of this plant? And they'd uh-huh. say stuff like, no, 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 we need it to be neat and tidy. Uh-huh. Like what's that mentality over there like? It's the total opposite. Over here it's right. like, oh, no, it's okay. It's, it's, it's this natural sort of look. For instance, um, even when like in the garden here this morning, I was going through deadheading, but you don't deadhead all the flowers. Right. You know, there's still some that are left. You know, you, yeah, the, the birds will come feed off of the, the the dried seed off the flowers and stuff. So it's, all, it's just being a bit more aware about the environment, the surroundings, working with it, not against it. You know, you've also got all your wildlife out there that are gonna feed off of, of it. When it comes to maintenance same sort of thing they prioritize that comes back to the planning thing they prioritize the time now to do all their pruning not sort of throughout the year sort of little little times they mm. let things grow be wild do their do their natural thing okay so, so that's having, just before winter haven't exactly yes having straight lines and all that stuff it's just no it's not a thing over <laughs> here at all not a thing and it's definitely yeah. more even when it comes to uh, working back home, you know, it's, you're, you're on a time crunch. You got to quickly mm. get in, get this done. Sometimes it might not look pretty. Sometimes it does. But over here, it's certainly about getting the, jo- the job done right. And um, mm. if that takes you a certain amount of time, it takes you that time. But it's all about doing it right at the end of the day. I love that. 
And also yeah. I love that there's like the artistic and the science level of it. So it's like, is there like, I, like when I'm hearing you saying, oh, we leave a few seed pods, I'm imagining that you're able mm-hmm. to take a bit of artistic creativity exactly. in terms of which ones you leave. Exactly, exactly. No, yeah, no, you still got to... It's going to look pretty. Everyone yeah. likes flowers and likes all the mm. color things, but it's okay to to leave a bit of a dead flower in there. It just adds a bit of a question. Oh, well, what, why? A bit of interest right. sort of thing in the garden. Oh, well, why did you leave that there? Oh, okay. I, I can see how it works. Whereas in Australia, it's, why did you leave that there? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Quick, cut it out. It's gone. Get rid of it. Chuck it out. <laughs> a bit no, more judgment in it. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I want to say a bit more. Back homes, it's quite petite. And it sort of needs to be perfect. Yeah. One over here, like it needs to be perfect for for our eye, but over mm. here it's, it, needs, it needs to be. It's a bit more, uh, yeah, just natural and with the environment, mm. working with it. That's and when I look at your Instagram feed and your LinkedIn posts, that's what I'm really getting is this real passion. It's not like an obsessive compulsive thing. It's just like a pure love for plants. Mm. No, no, ever since I was, you know, just before I could even walk, I was there picking flowers and mm. and stuff. So it's just been a, a passion and an interest that I started when I was very young. And mm-hmm. I was something simple as just working in the garden with me mum and then just in the veggie garden, just going through and pulling through and showing interest with it. And then from that, it just built, 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 built to where it is now. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the next garden now, Eden Project. Can you tell us about this garden for someone who doesn't know what that particular garden is and what are some of the things that you learned there? So the Eden Project, it, um, it's it been around for 20 years now and it was a, a quarry to begin with. And um, Tim's, uh, Tim Smith was the, the main dude who sort of helped organize it. And it was, it was actually a group of guys, I remember hearing the story actually, I believe they were at the pub one of the one of the afternoon, and there was a group of a group of guys going around just chatting ideas and you know just just general banter, and one of them come up with the idea. Well, what about these giant glass houses? That and it sort of started that at, at a pub the idea of it, and then so they built the it's in the quarry, and there's a rainforest dome and a Mediterranean, and um, it's it was very uh, interesting working there. Um, working in the domes, definitely the pest control was a big thing that um, I learnt. I learnt there that much more about beneficial insects as well. Right, even in the dome. In the domes, yeah, yeah, because it was quite a big issue actually. Um, every week we had to go through and put out uh, beneficial insects like ladybugs around. To go just go through, sprinkle them around. Mm-hmm. So I did no spraying there. But also another thing was actually safety procedures in gardens as well for instance because they've you've got big trees in these domes that of course have no wind passing mm. through and of course when wind also will help the or strengthen the roots help it be more stable and you don't have that um in the dome so yeah, that'd go through do safety walks around check branches trees you know anything that could be falling down all that sort of stuff they actually i remember talking with a guy named neil um, he was telling me that they had this, they, they, they thought about this during the planning and they're actually going to insert like a ginormous fan or something <laughs> in the dome to actually help with that, to right. make a bit of a w- yeah. wind effect in there to help strengthen the roots. But they, they don't have, they, yeah, I think they 
talked about it, but they never never followed through with it. I can't imagine that paying someone to come through every single morning <laughs> and check the trees would be any cheaper. No, exactly. But it probably is nicer. Mm-mm. So definitely doing, yeah, safety procedures in mm. there was one thing. So every morning they had to, one of the, uh, someone in the team had to go through and they actually had a, a clipboard that would have, you know, a list of all the trees that maybe the week before it looked a bit sort of, I know that a branch up there could be falling down mm-hmm. very soon. So doing your, definitely doing the, I know everyone probably doesn't like doing all the paperwork, but definitely just having a record of everything. It's mm-hmm. just good at the end of the day to, to look, to look back on. I feel like also that if you, you know, if you actually have, uh, especially safety concerns, having mm-hmm. that record to back mm-hmm. up on is important. I recently had a chat with a guy called Simon Harrison who uh, was a parks and gardens manager and they actually had a fatality in a garden. And mm. I think the media kind of jumped on them straight away and blamed the the maintenance team for, for this for this pure accident and then they are actually able to go well no here are our maintenance records we actually did check mm-hmm. that tree we actually did identify that as a as a potential hazard but the hazard wasn't enough to warrant taking that tree out or pruning that branch off and uh-huh. you know it, it's up to code and, and here's the code and here's how we met that code because at the end of the day you actually can't remove every risk otherwise we wouldn't have any trees at all exactly mm. exactly so you still there's always going to be a, a risk a risk factor there no matter no matter how good it could look, you know, mm. there's always there's always going to be a risk factor there. So definitely having the record there, definitely saved in there. And, of course, being a, a really big, well-known garden as well, just like in the project, you need something like that in. Mm. Um, of course, not, not not be for every every garden. You still, But it's still good to have a little, little, little check thing um, definitely out there. But that's definitely another, another thing I, I learned from there. It's definitely the yeah, so definitely the pest control and the safety procedures, mm-hmm. which is I think is very important. So, were there any other safety procedures other than the tree that you learnt there, like something that we can learn in Australia? Because I think for a lot of horticulturists, at least the teams that have worked under me, I've always said do don't even touch the trees. <laughs> mm-hmm. Other ones that I think I've learnt is um, more like training when it comes to using ladders and equipment um definitely okay that was another one at eden project that they they did quite a lot of um you sort of needed the training to sort of make sure that you're competent but then also it comes back to the paperwork was another thing that they had to sort of yeah main reason you had to do it for which actually at hidkit another garden that worked that um under the national trust you needed to have the safety that you have the certificates that you have passed to be able to go on a ladder or use a chainsaw or use a hedger or something. So definitely having the equipment safety procedures is definitely another thing at the Eden Project. Right. So similar to our safe work method statements exactly. here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very similar, yeah. Mm. I had a buddy who uh, – a guy working under me, I wasn't in charge of him this day, but he went to change the mower height but put his hand under the bowl to do, <laughs> to do it. Oh, no. Yeah, WorkSafe came around and you, they're very intimidating when they come around and they Ooh. sort of had a look at our safe work method statement. Yep, it says not to do that. And then it's just like, well, you can't help stupid at the end of the day. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. No, it's there's a lot of stuff like like that actually. Like 
there's even some things that you can do yourself. For instance, when you're actually, I was using the wood chipper. I think it was that Eden Project as well. Ooh, and um, don't like where saying, this one's going. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was saying that definitely when it comes to even just how you dress, having baggy yeah. clothes. For instance, you're chucking a branch in, you might get caught. Even they even said, don't wear gloves. Yeah. Even though you're handling sticks and you're throwing them in, don't wear gloves mm-hmm. because even that can a tree branch could hook in there and there you go, pulls you in and mm. you're, you're chewed up there. So just little things like that is got to be not the good. It's funny even even on social media, I'll see see just like why like what what's going through your head. For one was <laughs> a, a guy he had a chainsaw and he had the, the the chain part of it. He was holding it between the two of his legs. While he's there trying to start it, and it was just oh, like, oh, interesting. It, it, it was yeah. So he had the actual blade of it <laughs> between two of his legs. His legs are holding it. He's standing up and he's there trying oh, to. No. I'm just thinking, why, <laughs> why? It's, What's your plan just, here, buddy? I know, I know. You see it all the time on there on social media. It's oh, everywhere. No. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah, he must not have heard of the kickback zone because I don't think so. I don't think so. Take my legs, but <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I don't think so. Oh, no, it's no. Just funny stuff you see on social media these days. Mm. You mentioned Hidkit Manor there. Like, by the way, before we move on, um, can you tell me where Eden Project is? Like, pe- people who actually haven't heard of Monet's Q or the Eden Project, where are these gardens? By the way. So I'll start with Monet. So Monet's it's in a it's about a fifty minute train ride uh, west of Paris, and it's in a town called Giverny. Um, that's where Monet's Garden or Claude Monet's Garden is um, located. Uh, very easy to get to. Um, just a fifty minute yeah fifty minute train ride from Saint Lazare in Paris to uh, Vernon Giverny. Here, fantastic. The town itself here is one of the oldest and prettiest towns you ever come to. Just come to the town is, is enough. You know, you, right. you got the garden here. You got the also the museum of impressionism also up, up the road as well. So that's where here that, that's where we're located here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eden Project is located. It's very close to well, the closest town is Saint Austell. Um, so Eden Project is located in Cornwall, very close to Saint Austell. Um, great area that is as well. Um, Hidkit Manor that is located in the Cotswolds. Um, what's the, I can't remember what the closest town was there. Uh, well, yeah, Hidkit Manor, yeah, located in the Cotswolds. Fantastic uh, area of the UK. They're very, very expensive to live in. Actually, uh, right. <laughs> I remember learning when I was there. <laughs> but um, very, just the landscape of the whole of the Cotswolds is very is very nice there. But working at Hidkit. Um, definitely when it comes to traditional methods of maintaining uh, a garden, so when it comes to using of hand tools, actually. So they didn't do a lot of sort of – they did have electric um, – they used uh, equipment. Hmm. But most of – for instance, when they were cutting a hedge there, they would actually just go through with shears. They wouldn't bother with um, using a hedge cutter or so what's anything that? like that. It's more about the actual care of the of the tree or the hedges, or because of course when you go with the through with a hedger, it's not a clean cut on every single branch. It's going to leave a little scar there for disease to go through. Right. So their thinking was that if you go through with a some shears or even your secateurs, you know you have a nice clean cut on each little branch or 
it's just much even though it's not time wise you mm. could say that you know it takes longer to do it that way but definitely much more traditional with the yeah. main maintenance of the garden definitely so is there anything else to learn there in terms of like what they're doing over there mm. with hedging compared with over here? So like, yeah, the shears, okay. It's like, I feel like you're almost a little bit closer to the plant and like it's getting a bit up close and personal with it. I don't know if that's just, I'm imagining that, but I, I'm a hedge trimmer person, a pet mechanical hedge trimmer. Like that's all throughout my career. I've used them all the time. But um, I, I, the more I learn about horticulture, the more I realize that there's actually a lot more to hedging than just shaping a yeah. plant. It's oh yeah, it's a load more than just you know, you know, just like when you get a haircut, short back and sides, long on the top. Yeah, 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 it's um, there's much more, much more to it. So you've also got to put into into fact, you know, not cutting it too much or cutting it too less. You know, cutting mm. at the right time of the year. There's just so many different factors when it comes to just simple and hedging. Um, for instance, when you take um. The landia, you know, you don't want to cut or any sort of conifer. You don't want to cut them way too back deep mm. to when you get to the wood. Um, you want to make sure you cut it still while it's still got the green in there because if you don't, it'll die and won't grow back. Mm. So just so many. And you also got to put into, yeah, again, put into the fact what you are actually cutting, you know, mm. what type of hedge it is, what type of plant it is. There's so much. You really got to put all, do the whole equation and put it all together to, to get the right amount of um, – to what you're going to cut and how much you want to take off and all that. So it's a lot more, yeah, a lot more than what's what meets you either. So what what is it like hedging with a pair of secateurs? What are we doing there? Well, so when you're doing that, you're more of looking, for instance, cutting back to the next node, the next bud, that sort of thing to sort of promote your growth into to a different direction. Um, just making sure that it's a clean cut on the branch. Because right. if you go through again with the electric um, saw or hedger, it's going to leave a much more dented and sort of scarred sort of branch. It's going to allow for mm. disease to get in. Of course, that's not going to happen on every single branch, but mm. it's just a much better practice to do it that way using with a secateur or even a hand shears. But then you've also got to come back to making sure that your whatever equipment that you are using is sanitary that you do clean it. Um, for instance, if you're pruning roses with your secateurs, you should be cleaning before and after your secateurs with bleach or some sort of chemicals to sort of make sure there's no transfer of diseases through. Um, that's another thing I found as well that we had to do each, each time was definitely just your general care of your tools as well mm -hmm. and the general maintenance of using your tools. So what do you mean by – like this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, but can you illuminate what you're talking about in terms of like care for machines and tools? Because I think a lot of particularly maintenance gardeners like – and I've been guilty of this too is it's we just turn up to a job, do our job, put the tools back in the truck, and then we go to the next one. And we always mean to get around to doing the maintenance of the tools, but unless mm. it's actually part of the schedule, it often gets left undone. Oh, yes. No, yeah. Um it's very, very important, actually. And uh, over here, it's definitely a big, a big thing. In the UK, I certainly noticed that it's um, because you know it, it keeps the longevity of your tools. Um, mm. Again, like if you're doing a job and you do one that you're pruning some sort of branch uh, that has a disease on it, you don't clean it. You move it to the next job, 
and then mm. you transfer that disease to that one and then your customer gets a bit unhappy because you've killed their tree now. So mm. it's very – you're really going to make sure that it's just a really good practice to make sure you clean your tools, set, make sure it's all sanitary for, for each each application of job that you do. It's just very important, very important. So what do you mean by sterilize? Like are we talking about um, – yeah, what, what can we use to do that? So just simply, even just some uh, soapy water, I, a few places use just to give it a little, little clean. Some use some, I think it was a type of bleach or something um, mm. that they use just to sort of go through, clean the blade, and then also a little sharpening afterwards. Um, mm. That was sort of the main. A fair places, it was just soapy water that they went through, mm. gave it a little clean um, of the blades there. I was speaking with Jane Perone last night, who is a house plant uh, podcast at On the Ledge, and mm-hmm. she reckons she just likes just using a naked flame. She just puts a flame over it oh, and happy days, yeah, which yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that, that sounds mm. very interesting, actually. Mm. Um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Certainly kill off all, a lot of the bacteria <laughs> and stuff on there. It's just like using a flame gun to kill the weeds. It's sort of the same thing there. Yeah, you just pull out your lighter, especially good for smokers. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Easy done. Yeah, just yeah. reach in the pocket. <laughs> so have you learned anything with regards to um, irrigation? Because that's a topic, a whole beast all in itself. Oh, yeah. So actually, so last year I was working at, Heat, uh, at Hidkit when they had the heat wave um, come right. through, come through there at Hidkit. And it was for two days, actually, I remember we only worked half days just because it was very hot for – and it, you could just tell that the garden was not used to um, used to that level of heat. So definitely the fact that climate change in each year, it's sort of continuing. Even here right now um, at Monet's, they, I think I heard yesterday were about seven to eight degrees above the average for this time of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's just insane. So remember last year at Hidkit, the heat wave there, and just that the – the importance of having a good watering system and irrigation uh, in because you just you, you can't prepare for something like that and having the and then also having the right schedule also watering schedule to, to back that up so then you know for next year oh we had this heat wave during this time it's quite possible it might happen again this time so sort of oh okay we'll turn you know we'll add an extra five minutes to our irrigation time and watering right so definitely the importance of yeah a good watering system in because just the the impact of that the climate change and the heat I've, that's one thing i definitely noticed over here it's all throughout was um definitely the the impact of the climate change and the just the the intensity of the heat uh mm-hmm. hot weather that they have over here just that the gardens over here just could not weren't, weren't up to scratch and couldn't handle it mm-hmm. so it's another thing that actually countries over here will have to look to countries like to Australia, the fact that we have more drought tolerance. You know, we already have that hot weather that they're not used to here. So they'll have to start looking to Australia and what we do mm. when it comes to warm weather, what our irrigation systems are like, what's our watering like, what plants are we using. It's just so much. So that's when we can give back. So it's. I it's, love that. Mm. Yeah. And our natives too. I, I, have you ever uh, seen any of our natives over there or are they not really not, a thing? No, no, no. no. There, you know, for instance, <laughs> in like, you know, the at, at, at the Eden Project, they had a, um, 
uh, an Australian collection there. Of course, had heaps of grevilleas, right. banksias, yeah. and um, grass trees, all that sort of stuff. That was in there. But in the wild here, absolutely not. There's nothing, mm-hmm. nothing here. So they'll have to, yeah, start to adapt yeah. to our drought-tolerant plants over here because it's getting right. much warmer over here. Yeah. And, it's constant, and each year it seems to be going up. So, Wouldn't that be cool to see some exports? I would love to see yeah. like polystamines and lily peelies and stuff oh. all over there. That would be it'd be very interesting over here. I don't yeah. know what it would look like actually, having <laughs> the sort of old look of the house. Have it, it would actually would be quite nice actually. Yeah. I've seen some photos of um, Australian cottage gardens and I think they look great. But, yeah, it, there's oh. a distinctive Australian feel and I don't know if they're ready for I know. it. I know. <laughs> I don't think so. They're definitely more that, yeah, definitely over here, the cottage feel, having, you know, you might have a, or your different perennials and mm. different plants with the flowers and just different. Well, I mean, that's well. we have a lot of perennial flowers that have, you know, but, plants that have flowers. Yeah. Uh, I think um, – they're just sort of used to what they're over yeah. here and having it back home. Yeah, one thing I'd have to try. The one thing I have to experiment. Yeah. But that's definitely one of the main things that Europe will have to look at countries like Australia to see what we're doing mm. when it comes to dealing with the hot weather. Um, but yeah, it's just it was a big issue, big issue last year. And even I think actually my my, my good friend Tyler Howard, um, he was also a Global Footprint Scholarship uh, mm-hmm. winner. Yeah, he's in 2019. Um, he was at uh, Q Botanic Gardens during the same time, and um, he was telling me the same thing. He he just found that the all the irrigation systems at Q were just not up to scratch just because mm-hmm. of this hot weather that that, that they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know if it was a normal time where we didn't have the climate change and it's all getting much warmer, it would have been fine. But yeah, just the, the impact of it. it Definitely over here, I think it's uh it's going to be quite telling in the next few years at least. Mm-hmm. See see where it goes. Did you find that like reticulated and automated irrigation systems are a big deal over there, like they are here, like smart systems and stuff that you can operate from your phone? No, 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 no. When it sort of when it comes to all parts of horticulture, it's it's just much more traditional over here. Ah. Hand watering is certainly yeah. still a thing that is quite regular. I can't imagine hand watering here. I know it's I just know. not well, done, is it? It's like over here where they're again they're just way traditional and sort of mm. they, they they got to a point to where they found that it works over here. And have stuck with it, but when mm. in Australia we're sort of trying to go towards that automated and more about the mm. technology rather than the hands-on yeah. aspect of gardening. I see, Which and is- I suppose that there's positives and negatives with it too, because it's like a way to connect with oh, yeah. your garden and to check for mm-hmm. pests and diseases and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can, if you go to work every day and then come home and you only do the mowing every second weekend or something like that, like a lot of people don't even really see their garden, really. No. Yeah. No, no, definitely no. Well, for instance, even yeah, back home, being in Sydney, like um, exactly, you 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 stuck doing your nine to five job, and then you come home, and it's only that every Sunday, you know, every second Sunday that you mow your lawn, mm. and it's, it's that's your only time that you can enjoy your mm. your garden, and yeah, no, and then over, well, that's over here, but then back home, if you got like, I think where was it, like um, what do they call it, uh, like one of those um. 
robot mowers like they're yeah. sort of coming on the trend right now and that's just taking your you know you just sit, <laughs> it's like having a giant hoover going around <laughs> it's just just in your backyard yeah that's like our one chance to connect with it but exactly. i mean i i wonder how that's going to affect the industry in years to come because i can't see any of that automation going away particularly as we have a staff shortage i know i know i think it's definitely going to be sort of the way well, it's not the way of the future, but that, that's definitely the the path that it's leading towards now mm. to definitely more automation mm. um, way of of gardening and and horticulture now. So it's almost like a lost trade yeah. sort of it's, it's sort of leaving. And but it's good now because um, definitely over here the the systems that they have in place to encourage uh, young people and other people, even like. Career changes. I've met so many people. Just other interns come through here. My name's the you know uh, there could be a lot of people that changed into horticulture. Could have been a teacher or mm. um, a mechanic before, but they they thought oh, I could have had an office job and thought no, I want to work outside now. So definitely, mm. and that's another thing over here. Just the I think it comes more down to the respect thing here. Yeah, the respect and love for the plants and their just, natural habits. Just, yeah, just to have, bring people in. So you see, I'm yeah. actually really into like AI. Like I'm like very interested in it. I'm terrified by it. And I'm also like, it's it's very exhilarating and thrilling to be honest. And I play with the chat GPT thing a little bit and mm. um, also interested in other AI. And I think that there are some serious limitations and I find it hard to believe that there's there's a few limitations i don't know if it's going to be able to overcome quickly so when it comes to stuff like automated mowing and hedging things into a particular shape like if you've got a particular shaped hedge like if it's just a border or something like that i don't Mm. think that's going to be too hard for ai to take on but where it's really going to struggle is the stuff like pruning a plant for natural shape so Uh you know finding that architecture and really getting in there it's like the art aspect of it so yes i think that there's always going to be a place for horticulture and i do hope that as a culture we can start to appreciate the art and science of horticulture more to the point where we elevate the jobs beyond just mowing lawns and i don't think it's too different to um like check out people you know those jobs Mm. got taken away and there is an art of checkout that's still there some people do prefer the human element but people Mm. like me when i just want my you know my apples and my oranges i'll just go through the self-checkout and get get it done so that i can then move on and Mm. i hope that we don't lose what horticulture really is it just it's going to change with the times i think i think so well even you, you compare you know before the times of the internet um, you sort of you had to go through every single book and read and get build up your knowledge of plant mm. identity and everything. You know, for instance, now you can just go on your phone, have a quick Google, and you know yeah. they, they have have they have apps now that can take a picture <laughs> of a flower or a leaf, and that tells you exactly what it is. So that's another reason I believe that it's not becoming much more of a respected trade, uh, respected career. Um, just the fact that it seems to be, you know, it's much more easy now. I can just mm. download on my phone. It can tell me what my what's wrong with my plant. Mate, look into ChatGPT. Ask it to write an integrated pest management plan for yeah. whatever pest you got going on, and it'll blow you away. Oh, really? Seriously? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll look that one up. I'll look it up. <laughs> but someone's got to ask the question and someone's got to actually do it. So I think it's just going to be one of those tools. Just like Google, um, ChatGPT is going to be another tool uh, that's going to play a role in the future. And I think a lot of people are asleep on it. And just for anyone listening to this right now, if you haven't heard of ChatGPT, Google it, get used to it, learn it. And this technology is not going away. Hmm. Is it, is it quite new? Is it, um, yeah, it's it's a few years old. It's really blown up pretty much just this year. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's okay. changed a lot of things. Oh, wow. So yeah. how does it sort of work? Is it just sort of not necessarily horticulture and gardening? So you can sort of no. ask the question yeah. and it'll give you a whole answer. Yeah. The problem is it's like a language model chatbot. So it's really good at putting mm. sentences together, but it gets a lot of things wrong. So it'll say something like um, pruning lamandras is essential because it encourages a tight branching habit. Well, that's completely oh, okay. false, but it okay. just sounds like it could be true. And then it'll say something like, um, another, so that's something that's false. It'll also say like redundant things, which are just like word salad, like sentences that just make no sense. So it'll be something like pruning is essential for pruning. <laughs> Oh, and it's okay. like, yeah, what what does you just what you just went in a circle without doing anything. But then it'll do something like, um, give me a so I'll ask it, give me an integrated pest management plan for thrips on roses, and it'll be like duh, 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 get everything right, and you'll be like, Holy smokes. But and wow. you'll be like, Well, but I actually did all of that. Um, give me some uncommon and out of the box ideas, and it'll be like, use reflective mulch. And you'll be like, holy smokes. Wow. Wow. I never would have thought of why that not in a think million of that? Yeah, years. why not think of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it, yeah, I think that's definitely uh, the way the industry is going now. It's just going to be much more automated and definitely, mm. yeah, so it's sort of a shame. But um, I think there's, again, there's a lot of positive and, and negatives to it. We're just going to make mm. sure we use it to in the right um, mm. in the right way. Yeah, yeah, we just can't lose our humanness to it. I mean, let's uh-huh. not get too deep here, but um, I think that the risk is less. Like a lot of people talk about the, um, uh, what is it, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Terminator. A lot of oh, people yeah. think of it in those terms, but I think of it uh-huh. more like The Matrix. I think that that's the risk that I see mm. is that we like get sloppy and flabby and then just totally give in to this unreal mm-hmm. world because like let's face it my job now basically is in this unreal world i mean you can say social media is unreal and it is but i'm making money off of it and that's mm. where my job is now so is it real or is it unreal i mean it's 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 getting the lines getting blurred between the real world and the unreal world i think so there needs to be a bit more of a defined line between it hmm. rather than but yes, yeah, it's, it's another. It's we're definitely in danger of fully going into it, and it's yeah, time yeah. will tell. But hopefully, hopefully we sort of stick on the path we are now. So, mate, we've we've taken a bit of a detour, but let's get back on track oh, now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My fault, mate. Um, we've got two more gardeners to talk about, and then I also wanted to talk about where you're going next in your career. But can we start on the lost garden of Heligan? Yeah, so the Lost Garden of Heligan, that's um, located also in Cornwall. Um, it's right. probably about a 20-minute drive from the Eden Project. Okay. And the two gardens are actually very similar. So Lost Gardens of Heligan 
was um, established before Eden Project. But Eden Project, when it was built, was somewhat based off of uh, the Lost Gardens of Heligan. And me working at the two, I could definitely see the similarities between the two. But then also there was a couple differences. And um, I was there for a short two weeks. Um, but the one thing I remember, I, I worked mainly in the productive garden. And one thing I learned there was definitely crop rotation was very uh, was a big thing that they um, talked about there, which of course helps uh, return nutrients to the soil. Um, and then the practice also works uh, to interrupt pests and disease cycles. So there's one thing that they really talked about there was definitely the crop rotation in their productive right. garden um, there. And all, again, same thing. Um, no chemical spraying. So why does crop rotation stop pests? Like what's the science there? So the science there is sort of that moving a plant around. So it's like you, you keep the, the pests and disease guessing sort of thing all the right. time, moving it through to different uh, aspects of the garden, uh, soil, um, just sort of keeping them, keeping them guessing. And it just breaks up the cycle. It also you know, improves the soil uh, by increasing the biomass from – from different crops, so having different crops mm. can, in a certain part, growing you grow them in this sort of uh, area of the garden in the soil, that plant's going to have different inputs into the soil. You replace that with another another plant; it's going to have different inputs as well, mm. which could have different hormones in there, which then can also combat your know, pests and diseases. So uh-huh. there's a whole, oh, it's a whole massive science to it, mm. and. You know, it can also improve rich structure with crop rotation and then also increase biodiversity. So you'll have different um, beneficial insects can be attracted to one plant, move that plant away, and then you've got other plants around and, and then you attract uh, different insects, which then also can also combat your different uh, pests that are attacking your plants, your surrounding plants with that one. So uh-huh. crop, it's a crop rotation it's a very good thing to do in your garden. Mm-hmm. And is that for vegetable crops or do we also have the opportunity to do that in amenity horticulture, particularly with annuals, I guess? You can definitely do it with a uh, – it's it's definitely more uh, vegetable um, practice, definitely use that. But, of course, you can definitely you take that same thing into your perennials in your garden, right. moving them throughout. Right. And, um, Actually dig them up and move them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ooh. You can go through it. Even Love if you that. want, you know, if, you, if you've if you got your front garden, you've got all your, your plants where they are, but if you want to do a little redesign, mm. dig them up, have a little bit of a play with it. Yeah, move them around. If you don't want them to get any bigger, and I mean, if you're happy with the size of them or mm. you want to cut them back down to sticks and move them, that, I love mm. that. That's cool. Yeah, certainly you don't, you know, it's a few practices when it comes to transplanting to make sure you don't do it in the middle of the day when the sun's <laughs> out, do it later in the afternoon. Um, sometimes you may also have to give it a little prune uh, before to sort of mm. so when you replant the plant back into the soil that it puts all its energy into reproducing new roots again mm. instead of holding plant, those so leaves open flowering. exactly mm-hmm. exactly so absolutely yeah that's cool switch change it around you know it, it's going to help the soil the plant itself the yeah biodiversity in the area go for it but definitely it's definitely still more of a, a veggie Mm-hmm. Uh, practice. So yeah, when you're doing your veggie garden in your backyard, definitely move it around, switch it up, switch and change it all the time. You know, keep those little buggers guessing. <laughs> <I won't> no. <know. laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So 
what else did you learn at the Lost Garden of Heligan? And what what is the Lost Garden of Heligan? Because gee, that's a great name for a garden. So actually, so it was also Tim Tim Smith that started um, the Eden Project. Mm-hmm. So the Lost Garden of Heligan, I believe it was a very rich family. I can't remember. It was a very rich family in the 1800s, I think. I, I'd have to double check that, but um, that. It was a very rich sort of they were a very rich family and they had a massive estate there and then they had their own sort of own private garden and um it eventually got lost and it actually got rediscovered again just on accident um right. someone was going along in the area and uh came across this garden and it was the the garden of heligan so that's why it became the lost garden mm-hmm. of heligan and came through and um tim smith um was the main uh, person who sort of helped bring it back to life to where it is today. What a great name for a garden. Mm-mm-mm. I know. Oh. <laughs> no, it was very, it was a very pleasure to work there. Cause they also have like a bit of a, um, like you got all the garden insect, but they've also have like a uh, farm animals there as well. So mm. it's a, and then working in the jungle as well for a, for a day. It was very interesting. Uh, you know, you got the ginormous gunnera in there, just down in Cornwall. Absolutely insane! Like I'm, you know, I'm I'm six two, and these were pretty eight foot tall. So, right. absolutely amazing. Gunnera. So I know the name, but I'm just trying to think of what a gunnera is. So the gunnera is the ginormous. Uh, the leaf of the gunnera is probably about a meter and a half, uh, width, and probably about the same length as well. Wow. It's, um. A ginormous, uh, let's see your photo, but um, it's a ginormous sort of prehistoric thing. They like more your swampy area, so where it's very wet. And, of course, uh, down there in Cornwall, rains all the time, so they grow like gangbusters down there. And um, very interesting plant, very interesting plant. Actually, another garden I visited down there was Tree Bar, which also I think they had the biggest gunner of leaves that I've ever seen. Absolutely, absolutely insane down there. I just Googled it because I do know the name and I'm sure that this is the plant that they have at Warrnambool Botanic Gardens. And when John oh. Shealy, the head gardener, walked me around there in Victoria, mm. um, I'm sure that that's what they had because you yeah, have very cool looking plants. They didn't get, yeah, they no, weren't this big though. The ones I'm looking at on Google, massive plants. Oh, no, yeah. They, these were absolutely, it's like priests. It's like you're going back to the, the age of the dinosaurs. Mm. They're just massive Massive, very interesting. One of my favorite um, plants, actually, quite right. interesting. They, they have a couple here, Monet's as well, mm-hmm. chucked in. It's just a very interesting plant. And just, yeah, it's a bit of ginormous leaves. And the, the flowers um, aren't too interesting when I sort of do that. But actually, their method at Lost Garden of Heligan, they had, they had them going through the, the creek, actually. And um, what they would do after they, the leaves would grow out, they would go through, cut the leaves, and then because to sort of protect the the plant itself they'll lay the leaves on top oh. around it sort of make like a little uh, tp type thing and then leave that over over the winter uh-huh um, to protect it from frost is it exactly exactly right. to protect it from the frost yeah not a big problem over here is it really especially not, not in brisbane <laughs> no 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 not at all not at all Okay, so there was one more garden that we wanted to talk about, and that was Tresco Abbey Garden. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned it before with the flume Flank. gun control weed management. Was there anything else that you had learnt from that particular garden? 
Um, definitely the because I also had other interns there, and a lot of one is it very stood out to me here. But Andrew, the head gardener, he really put time and energy into helping and teaching the interns around. So I remember working there and um, just working in the garden. He would come over to me and sort of, hey, hey, if you, this might be something you might interested. I want to pull you aside and chat to you about this. So just the you could be out of garden there doing an internship and yeah, it is about working and stuff, but then just when the, when the, the team there puts his energy into actually teaching you something and learning, it's, it was a very, it felt very good. And mm. I think it's very important that yes, you, you have interns there to work and stuff, but then also take them away from the work to the, Hey, let's go talk about this because also each again, I was there for two weeks as well at Tresco and, um, it was either every Friday or every second Friday, um, just an hour in the afternoon before we would finish, he would do a plant ident and he would go around and collect 30 to 40 specimens and have all us in touch. It's just for fun. There wasn't, there's no, we weren't tested or anything, just for mm, fun. Mm. But go through and just sort of, we'll go through and identify the, the plants we best, best we could. But just, just the importance of just the little things like that of having education to, to to people and then even just doing a little i think that's one thing that any sort of garden that offers internships it's just to do like a little plant ident walk around the garden one you get to know the garden a bit a bit better mm. sort of where everything is and know the team but then just little things like that knowing the native plants in the area what works what doesn't um definitely more of a less hands-on thing that uh that i learned it was very interesting just being because Tresco, it's located on the, on the Isles of Scilly, and it's a group of small islands. And just living on the on the island for a couple of weeks was just very interesting compared to you know Australia, ginormous, and then going to this tiny little island. Um, yeah, it was very interesting to sort of work there. And then also, if you can compare Tresco to other guns in the UK, even though it's still part of the UK. It's just way, way, way more tropical there in Tresco than it even is in in the Eden Project, yeah. even though it's only a, probably a couple hundred kilometers uh, between the two. Just the different plants that are grown in each each area is just insane. So, mm. oh, they, if there's um, any UK listeners, definitely go to Tresco. It just it it just it's totally different to the rest of the UK. Actually, go to Tresco. Have a have a look what's going on there. It's just insane, insane. Very cool. So Ash, look, you're an Aussie. You've been doing a lot of volunteering work overseas. I want to know because we're very interested in careers on this podcast. Like, what is your career? Like, do you have a plan? Are you taking it each day as it comes? Do you mm. are you like meticulously planning each step? Is it just that you have an end goal in sight? Or tell us about your career, where you're going in your career, I guess. Definitely. Well, I, I this is sadly, this is my, my last week here at Monet's, but mm. um, I'll be going back home at the beginning of November. And I'm going to be home for a little bit, but I've got a bit of a, I do have a bit of a plan for, and I think it's very good for any young person or any person actually. So you don't need a, a exact date by date type plan, mm. but have a bit of a plan of where you want to go, what you want to do. Myself, before I did my traveling, before I uh, was awarded the scholarship, um, landscaping was one thing I really wanted to to do, become a you know, have my own business. 
now doing my traveling, working on all their different guns, now I see myself becoming a head gardener and that is where I'm aiming for and that's where I'm going. Um, definitely have to any any person, do a bit of traveling, move around. You don't have to necessarily travel overseas, but even in your local area, maybe it could be do different nurseries or different guns. You'll learn sort of through what you want to do mm. and definitely have a good plan of where you want to go. And um, actually, I was recently in Dublin um, visiting uh, Peter Donegan, who's going to be speaking mm. at the AOH conference. And uh, one thing I learned from him was is design is also another thing I wouldn't mind um, dabbling in a, in a little bit in garden design. And I was mentioning Chelsea Flower Show. That was another one I, I, mm. I was at last year. Um, but he said to me, because I, I, I posed a question to him, I said, what would you say to someone that is just starting out in garden design and they want to do their first garden? Should they start with a, a maybe a garden show that isn't um, as popular or should you go straight to the top? And he said, go straight to the top right. because if you if you even, even if you fail at the you know the bottom one, um, you know, you you don't go as far. But if you fail at the top one, you, well, I can't remember what the expression was. He said to me. He said, if you're going to – oh, what was it? If you're going to burn, you might as well burn on the highest level. Yeah. It was something like that. It was very interesting. But um, that right. was sort of my – definitely a head gardener position is where I am going now. And my plans for next year is that um, because they have a replica Monet's garden in Japan – I've been in contact there um, to sort of set up a bit of maybe maybe like a month sort of placement in Japan uh, for early next year. Uh, Singapore um, gardens in the in the bay is also another one high on my list. Um, even uh, New Zealand, um, I believe New Zealand has a lot to offer, even though it's you know very close to to Australia. New Zealand has it's just very different as well from from mm. what I've been told. So New Zealand's another country that. I believe there's a a lot to a lot to offer there, but then I think at the end of that, coming back to Europe and then trying to 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 find a, a job in some sort of garden. I've I've actually been asking to for a job here at Monet's, and um, but uh, we'll have to see see about that one. But because <laughs> you do a lot of volunteering, don't you? I, I just want to make sure I that do. listeners know that this glamorous life that you're living. It's not mm. a life without sacrifice. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. No, no, no. Um, it's a lot of a lot of volunteering. Like it, me doing this now, I'm not doing it for the money, you know, yeah. at all. Like it, it's. Yeah. I'm sort of eating two minute noodles pretty much every single night, basically. <laughs> um, there is a lot of sacrifice. Even the, you know, money is a big sacrifice. Uh, being a, just away from family and friends back home is a big sacrifice. Um, but I believe you know. Short-term gain, uh, pain for a long-term gain. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm sort of at at the moment. Um, but no, it's a, it, mostly all these gardens I'm sort of being, it has been volunteering work. Um, some of them provided free accommodation sort of um, thing, but there is a lot of uh, disadvantages in a sense um, mm. when it comes to this. But, you know, at long-term, it's 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 a thing to do. There's so many much it's so many more uh pros than there is cons when it when it comes to this traveling thing. But definitely save up your money. But then also 
there's heaps of scholarships out there. For instance, the one I did, the Global Footprints Scholarship, there's so many opportunities um, out there to sort of reach out to a sponsor or even even when people oh, people ask me, you know, oh, I wish I could go there, I wish I could work here. And I said, it's as simple as just sending an email to them. Mm. You know, most, most of your gardens are going to be very interested to – to hear what any young person, if they're if you're passionate and eager to to travel and learn, you just you can send an email to any any garden out in the world, and most of them will be very happy to answer back uh, to you with, with your with your queries mm. um, or what you want to do. And that path that you're walking, if it was easy, everybody would do it, and then you wouldn't exactly. be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it takes a lot of work um, as well to sort of reach out, like. You still need to do a lot of the, uh, lot of your research into it, but um, it takes a lot of that take a lot of work and and sacrifice to to get to, well, definitely where I am now. It took it took a lot because even I remember when applying for the scholarship, I remember you know each night with the the questions that they that they give me, you know each night sort of tweaking them and making sure it sounded really good and what I was expressing, what I believe that I can get out of it. So and then just. Oh, it just so there is a lot of work, but mm. it's all worth it in the end. All worth it in the end. So, look, I'll let you go in a second because I know you're a busy man. I just wanted to ask two more questions. So, like in terms of your career, how much of social media, like, does the how how much does social media play into it? Oh, it it does play. A little bit into it, more definitely more positive things because I'm able to sense uh, spread my message out, which is of course um, mm. helping young people, showing uh, young people in the horticulture industry, showing them. You know, there's so many opportunities out there. It's a social media really helps with that. Shows, um, you know, if, if for instance I learned something today, I can do a post up on Instagram and everyone can can see it. Um, Social media is a big aspect, definitely in the last 10 years. Mm. Um, social media has become a big thing in horticulture. Now you see on TikTok and Instagram reels, um, you know, people doing little short little videos of pruning tips or mm. garden designs. So media is a big thing that is definitely coming up in the horticulture industry. Well, because you've got some of the best horticulturists in the world who are commenting on your stuff. Like you've got Jason Summers, Alan Burnell, you've got Peter Donegan, just some of the real mm. big heavy hitters that are connected with you. And I don't know if personal brand is a term that like you would use for what you're doing or mm. not. Like would you use that term for what you're doing? I suppose you could say, no, yeah, you, you could say that. Yeah, because um, I, I would. Certainly have a, a, I, I certainly have a mission that I that I that I want to complete and yeah. um, well, and I'm pushing forward. So as well, I definitely would have a personal brand. Yeah, absolutely. Like even now, I'll have um, uh, other young horticulturalists uh, reach out to me and ask for my advice, yeah. and then I'm happy to share that. So that's sort of my my message right now is to give back to the industry because it gave so much to me. Mm. So I'm very happy to 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 lend a hand to anyone and anyone out there, which comes back to it um with with everyone listening um please if there's any questions when it comes to traveling and in the gardens i've been at feel free to send me a message um i'll be very happy to, to answer any questions that that anyone has and you're coming back to australia so you'll be entering the job market again i know that a lot of oh, employers yes. are looking for a, i know that you've already <laughs> had a couple of job offers but yeah are you keeping your options open or what 
Uh, oh, no, I'm definitely keeping options open at the <laughs> moment because, like, you know, oh, it's, it's honestly, I, I, I tried to plan for like a year or, or next few months, but things just keep changing. Mm. Like, it's really hard to sort of plan. But no, at the moment, I'm keeping things, op- yeah, keeping everything open at, for, for, for the moment. But um, definitely when I go back home, I'm going to have a good week off, I think. <laughs> well I'm sleep for a week. And then you'll be ready to work right through Christmas again. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm looking. Oh, it'd be good. Uh, oh, I can't wait to actually get home. It'd be nice yeah, to sort of enjoy the, the the heat and get back in the garden back home. Mm. So we've come to the time within the episode where I always like to ask guests one final question. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be on topic. It can be about anything that you'd like in the world. You can even tell us about the cool skateboard trick you learnt on the weekend. <laughs> Ash, what else would you like the listeners to know about? I want to put this to my own um, experiences, but don't be afraid to take a risk. Mm. Don't be afraid to take a risk. And that could be anything. It could doesn't mean to be in horticulture or traveling or anything. If there's something that you want, don't be afraid to take a risk to succeed it. Because mm-hmm. I see today in the young people that, you know, something might be too far for them to, to get. So they think, oh, I won't take the risk to do it. Be out of your comfort zone. Take the risk. It's just you, you won't regret it. If it doesn't work out, that's okay. You mm-hmm. learn from it and then you can grow from there. Mm-hmm. So definitely, definitely one thing that I want listeners to know is take a risk today. Um, put yourself out there. You know, take be out of your comfort zone. That's what that, that's why that's my message that I always try to put out to people. I love that. And you actually embody that too, Ash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're living that. Uh, oh, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's that's, that's that's just where the growth is. For instance, you know, being yourself out of comfort zone is where you learn more about yourself. And it's where you also learn about the world. So definitely just, uh, yeah, don't be afraid, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to be yourself at all. Well at said. All. Thanks so much for a great chat, Ash. I really appreciate your time, mate. No, no, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Um, been a pleasure. If you'd like to work in some of the best gardens in Australia, head to hortpeople.com where you'll find jobs with the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, National Trust of Australia, small family-run businesses and large national companies. Set a job notification in your area of expertise, whether that's general horticulture, botanic gardens, maintenance, turf, green infrastructure or new to the industry. There are over 60 categories to choose from. Our industry needs a job board like this, and by using Hort People, you become a part of a grassroots movement that's not reliant on the larger, non-specific job boards, which are full of dog grooming and aged care jobs that keep popping up when you search for garden industry jobs. 